Good evening. So last night, Oren spoke so movingly about the second of the four Brahmaviharas, which is compassion. And some of the stories he shared were so intense that I, I felt like tonight, I just want to say that no animals are being killed in the writing of this Dharma talk. <laughs> so we're safe. You can relax. I've even got a dolphin story coming later. So tonight I wanted to really come back to the broader context of the practices that Metta sits within, these four qualities of kindness and compassion and appreciative joy and equanimity. We've covered metta in some detail, compassion, last night. So tonight, for the sake of completeness, I just want to touch into the last of these two qualities, appreciative joy and equanimity. And in some ways, I I wish we had a few more days so that we could explore them in a little more detail because all four of these really do work together so powerfully to strengthen each other and to strengthen our heart's capacity to really meet the full spectrum of what life brings us, the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows, as they refer to it in the Taoist tradition. And one way that we can think about these four qualities is as different flavors of love. And when all these four come together, they reinforce and strengthen each other in the same way that a four-strand piece of rope is stronger than a single-strand piece of rope. And as many of you have already noticed, we might start out cultivating metta, goodwill, and at times the heart just naturally moves into these different expressions of love. And this natural responsiveness of the heart-mind is captured in quite a well-known quote by the Tibetan meditation master Shabka from the 19th century. He says, the mind nature is vivid as a flawless piece of crystal, intrinsically empty, naturally radiant, ceaselessly responsive. Intrinsically empty, naturally radiant, ceaselessly responsive. And when I first heard that quote, I was on retreat at the Forest Refuge, and I'd been practicing with these Brahmaviharas quite intensively. And that image of the heart-mind as being like a flawless piece of crystal, it really struck me. It so beautifully conveys how when the heart and the mind are perfectly clear, we automatically respond in the appropriate way with kindness or compassion or joy or equanimity, just as a crystal or a diamond naturally responds to light. So sometimes a diamond, a crystal flashes red, sometimes blue, sometimes yellow. And all of these colors are possible because of the diamond's innate purity. And as we've been emphasizing, though, this cultivation of the Brahma-viharas is a training. It's a training of our attention to see the world through kind eyes 
And it's also a training in releasing the obstacles to these heart qualities, seeing what gets in the way and helping it to dissolve. So at least to begin with, we often do need to systematically train in and practice these four different qualities. And then over time, they start to become more and more the default setting of our hearts and minds. And there is a relationship between the four of them that can be helpful to understand. And one way I think of uh, the way they can be arranged is in terms of a diamond shape. So coming back to the diamond metaphor again, this time more as a diagram, a four-pointed shape. If you think of something like this, I'll just draw it in the air. At the bottom point of that diamond is the quality of metta, because metta is really the foundation. And then on either of the two side points, we have compassion and joy. And then at the top, equanimity. So that's just my own way of seeing how they uh, can interrelate. And I put metta at the bottom because it really is the foundation that the other three emerge from. For example, it's said that when metta turns towards difficulty, towards suffering, it naturally flowers as compassion. So I think of compassion as being one of these side points of the diamond. And on the other side, in the same way, when metta turns towards what's going well, towards happiness, it naturally flowers as appreciative joy, as mudita. So we have joy and compassion on alternate sides. And joy, this mudita, is the ability to feel happiness for another's happiness, to take delight in it and to feel glad. And then when joy and compassion are completely imbalanced, they can come together and flower as equanimity. So I've put equanimity as the top point of the diamond, as the apex of it. And equanimity is a slightly old-fashioned English word. Basically, it means balance or evenness. And it refers to the heart-mind that's completely at ease without any reactivity, without any trace of wanting or not wanting, simply resting, poised, and balanced. So this diamond diagram is just one way of seeing how these four practices might interrelate. And there are probably many other schemes that we could come up with. For example, we might think of Equanimity is being at the bottom because this is what helps all of these states to be unconditional, to be boundless. But one way that this arrangement might be helpful is to see how the different Brahmaviharas can be used to balance each other out. So at times when we realize that our practice has got off balance in some way, we might turn to one of the other practices to help us rebalance it. So, for example, if the metta starts to feel maybe just a little bit dry or a little bit superficial, we can change to compassion practice for a while. Because when we tune into suffering with an attitude of kindness, it can strengthen our sense of purpose and bring more depth to the metta. Sometimes, though, uh, we can start to get bogged down when we come too much into focus on suffering and we don't have the capacity to meet it, 
we can feel overwhelmed by the 10,000 sorrows. And then we might deliberately need to look to the other side of the diamond, to the 10,000 joys, inclining our heart and minds towards joy, towards gratitude, to appreciation for what's going well in our own and others' lives. Sometimes, though, this joy can shade into its near enemy of elation or giddiness, and we lose, uh, we lose that to balance. And then and again, we need to turn to equanimity to find that steadiness and stability. And actually, equanimity is a useful antidote to any kind of imbalance. So that's another reason that it sits at the top of the diamond. It's metaphorically, it's really the pinnacle of all of these mind states. So I'll come back to Mudita in a few moments, but first I'd really like to take a bit more time to explore this third quality of Mudita, sometimes translated as appreciative joy, sympathetic joy, altruistic joy, and sometimes simply gladness. So this quality of mudita is the heart's capacity to feel gladness with an emphasis on the gladness for another's happiness. So it includes flavors of appreciation and gratitude. And it can be a very uplifting and inspiring quality. So to help get perhaps a feel for this quality, I'd like to follow Oren's new tradition and just share an animal story. It's a dolphin story. A few years ago, I was walking along a beach uh, near my parents' home in New Zealand with my mother. And it was a beautiful, sunny day. And there was a woman out enjoying the ocean, paddling a surf ski just beyond the wave break, uh, pretty close inshore. And I was watching her and imagining that that would be quite a pleasant experience. And as I was watching, I saw this fin just appear behind her. And I was about to get alarmed when I saw another fin, and then another fin, and then another fin. And I realized, oh, these are dolphins. They're not sharks. So I relaxed. And as I watched, this pod of dolphins just swam up and started to completely surround the woman. Some of them were mothers with babies, And they just kept diving under her surf ski and popping up the other side. And I could see them looking at her with this big dolphin grins on their faces. And it was, for ages, they were just dancing and diving and splashing and circling and playing all around her. And it was totally fascinating to watch. And then after maybe 20 minutes, they disappeared and the woman paddled into shore. So we went over to talk to her and... She said that she'd been coming to that beach for about 25 years and she had never had an experience like that. She was literally trembling from head to toe. She was just so inspired and excited. And she said at first she'd been a bit worried that they were trying to flip her and and get her into the water. But she realized that after a few seconds, they really just wanted to play. So she started playing with them too and just paddling around in circles and they would dive and come up and look at her and the babies would follow. The mothers were teaching the babies how to play. And what struck me in all of this was just how powerfully the dolphins transmitted their sense of delight to the woman on the surf ski. 
and then how she in turn transmitted that to me and my mother. So we really heard and felt the impact that that experience had on her. And I know these days that swimming with dolphins is kind of a thing, and I'd always been cynical about it, but after that experience, I could really see it has a lot of potential. And I could feel that woman, she shared, you know, she had had a very profoundly moving experience, so I became a convert. (laughs) And just to say that it's relatively easy to feel mudita and the other Brahma-Vihara qualities in relation to animals. Because our relationship with animals usually is much simpler. But for many of us, when it comes to feeling mudita for other people, this is the hardest of the four Brahma-Viharas. Perhaps because many of us come from societies where there's strong conditioning around individualism and competition, So it's not always our heart's first response to really celebrate another person's success or happiness. We can more easily fall into what's known as the near enemy of mudita, which is envy, jealousy, or resentment. But the good news is that as with all of these Brahma-Vihara qualities, we can train in them. Through practice, we can learn how to cultivate this joy so it comes more easily. And it's strange to me that even though joy plays quite a significant role in the Buddha's teachings, for various reasons, at least in our tradition, it seems to be overlooked. And that's my perception anyway, so I thought, well, I better check this. And I just took a look on Dharma Seed uh, to look at the subjects of talks, and I found that For metta, there were 165 pages of talks. And for compassion, there were 125. And for equanimity, there were 68. And for mudita, 18. And there's 10 talks on each page. So that's 180 talks on mudita out of a total of 30,000 on the whole site. Not a lot. And it's possible that part of this lack is due to a sense that, particularly in times like these, it can seem naive or maybe even ridiculous to even consider cultivating joy when our survival as a species is under threat. And every day we're exposed to horrifying news, not only in the world out there, but in our own communities, our own families, in our own hearts and minds. And there are just so many different forms of social injustice and oppression and divisiveness that we can easily get pulled into despair, just as many of you have been sharing here in the hall and in the group and the individual meetings. So this isn't news. And we can legitimately ask, well, how can cultivating joy even be possible? let alone relevant in times like these. And I just want to say, I can't answer that question for any of you, but in terms of my own practice, uh, similar to what I said this morning, it's precisely because there is so much suffering in the world that I feel like I've needed to consciously make the time and the effort to turn towards non-suffering 
towards gladness or joy to restore myself so that I can then turn once more to face those difficulties with greater resilience, with greater strength and with more skillfulness. So tonight I'd just like to talk a little bit more about how this practice of mudita can be used to help maintain balance in our practice overall. And this theme of balance is really woven throughout the Buddha's teachings. Some of you might know that the very first discourse he gave after his enlightenment, after he fully woke up, is a discourse where he spoke about the middle way, the need for balance between extremes, between, on the one hand, not falling into self-indulgence, and on the other, not falling into self-torture, self-mortification. Because in India at that time, it was a common practice to try and subdue the body or or torture the body as a path to uh, spiritual realization. Now, fortunately for us, that's not a practice that's common these days. But what is quite common, as Joseph Goldstein has pointed out, is more of a kind of a psychological self-torture. So this um, habitual falling into self-judgment or self-aversion, self-loathing at the extreme end of the spectrum. And some of us come to practice with some variation of that in the form of a self-improvement project. And we can use our whole Brahma-Vihara practice as a way to try and improve ourselves and not see the underlying self-aversion that's beneath that. So cultivating joy can actually have a very important role in balancing out our tendency often to focus on what's difficult and painful and not going well. And this is a tendency that often creeps into our meditation practice too. I've seen it in myself and also in many of the students I work with around the world. This underlying assumption that this practice is supposed to be hard work. It's supposed to be uncomfortable and difficult and painful. And if it's not those things, if it's neutral or enjoyable... We're doing something wrong. We're not working hard enough. We're not going deep enough. We're not seeing clearly enough. And sometimes there's a lot of uh, resistance even to the suggestion that joy might be a necessary part of the practice. So it's just an invitation to notice during this talk if you do happen to notice some of these um, views or beliefs about how the practice is supposed to be. And if you do recognize something like that, part of it is perhaps coming just from our biological hardwiring. We've been talking about this sort of inbuilt negativity bias where we're hardwired to pay more attention to what's unpleasant than to what's pleasant. That um, Rick Hansen's statement that's now almost a cliche that our brains are like Velcro for the unpleasant and Teflon for the pleasant. So we can see that uh, the unpleasant tends to stick around more, whereas the pleasant just slides right off us. So we have this basic biological assumptions that are going on. And then on top of that, we often add a whole pile of social and cultural conditioning that reinforces it. The kind of attitude I just mentioned of thinking 
The practice is supposed to be hard work and it's not supposed to be enjoyable. And it is true that the Buddha warned us not to get attached to sense pleasures, but that doesn't mean never enjoying anything and not cultivating skillful, pleasant states of mind. So in my own practice, I didn't hear that nuance. And for a while in the beginning, I was afraid of of enjoyment. I thought I'd get attached to it. And so I didn't allow myself to feel much pleasure at all. And I wasn't able to recognize that this was a form of wrong view, that actually I was attached to non-attachment out of the fear that it would automatically lead to clinging. So just to name that cultivating joy for many people can be challenging and the benefits can be equally powerful. So how do we actually do that as a meditation practice? Basically, traditionally, it's taught in a similar way to the metta practice through silently reciting phrases that are designed to evoke joy in relation to different categories of people. So some traditional phrases are things like, may your happiness and joy continue. May your happiness not leave you. May it grow and never wane. And traditionally, when we do this reciting phrases method, we move through different categories of people. We begin with someone that we're close to, who's going through uh, some good fortune, who's experiencing some success and happiness. And then we move on to the benefactor, and then the neutral person, then the so-called difficult person, and then all beings. So the traditional form is similar to metta, but with one key difference. I don't know if you noticed, but there was no self in that sequence. So in that uh, reciting phrases form, we're generally instructed not to include ourselves. And when I began exploring mudita, I thought that was strange because everywhere else in the Buddha's teachings were encouraged to make no distinction between self and other. And with kindness and compassion and equanimity, we do do the practice for ourselves. So I asked a Pali scholar, well, what does mudita actually mean? And he said, basically, gladness. And the word itself doesn't include any sense of for another. And so I I found out that this form of practice developed after the lifetime of the Buddha. And the way it was offered in the Buddha's own lifetime was more this radiating energy form that we've been chanting in the morning. So as a reminder, just the last part of the chant, I will abide pervading the all-encompassing world with a mind, a heart-mind, imbued with gladness, abundant, exalted, immeasurable, without hostility and without ill-will. And this sense of mudita being pervasive, encompassing the entire world, starts from our own heart centers. So in this way, it does include ourselves. And then when it pervades the entire world, it's boundless. And again, it includes ourselves. So in my own practice, I started to get interested in finding a way to get this sense of gladness going through orienting a little more towards self-appreciation as an antidote to the kind of 
habitual self-judgments that I've been talking about. And as I was exploring all of this in my own practice, I found an interesting teaching that the Buddha gave to a layman by the name of Mahanama. And this man, Mahanama, basically went to the Buddha and said, asked for some teachings that were suitable for a lay person like himself who lived in a household, quote, crowded with children. So he was very much a a home house dweller, not a monastic. And the Buddha, it said, told him that there were six things he should contemplate every day. And that if he did this, he would develop the kind of rapturous joy that leads to deep concentration, which in turn leads to clear seeing, to insight, to wisdom, and to freedom. And the six things that the Buddha recommended Mahanama contemplate were the good qualities of the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. So this is a form of taking refuge that I spoke about on opening night. Those are the first three. And then the next, he said, Mahanama should uh, contemplate his own generosity, that he should contemplate his own ethical conduct, his virtues, his good qualities. And then lastly, he should contemplate the good qualities of the devas or the angels. So perhaps that last one doesn't have uh, much resonance for some of us, but I was really interested in this invitation to recall, to recollect one's own generosity and one's own good qualities. And in my own practice at that time, I found this a pretty confronting idea. And often when I share this practice with students, they have a similar response, at times almost of fear because there can be such deep conditioning around unworthiness, even a sense that we somehow deserve to suffer. So we have this individual conditioning that I mentioned earlier, and we also often have cultural conditioning too. So I grew up in England and New Zealand, and in those countries there's uh, this idea that you shouldn't uh, blow your own trumpet Here I think you say toot your own horn, but it's the same (laughs) basic idea. And in in Australia, where I also spend a lot of time, they have something known as tall poppy syndrome. And tall poppy syndrome is this idea that the tall poppy gets its head lopped off. (laughs) And then in Japan, in a similar vein, apparently they have a saying, the nail that sticks out gets hammered flat. So it's not surprising that we might have some fear of being seen. Of, um, and we can tend to disown our own achievements, our own good qualities, even to ourselves. But as the Buddha pointed out to Mahanama, openly acknowledging our strengths can turn them into a resource, something that helps us to develop confidence on this path. So when I first read this instruction a few years ago, I was kind of so horrified that I decided to try it. (laughs) And I assumed that I'd have to take care that it didn't make me conceited or inflated in some way or special. But what I found was that actually the opposite was true. That when I had more of just a basic sense of connection to that I had some good qualities... I was much more able to connect with and appreciate the good qualities of other people too. 
I felt more at ease and I felt a sense of kinship and appreciation of others instead of the more habitual comparing mind. And the more I contemplated these good qualities, I recognized that they didn't actually, I couldn't say they really belonged to me. They were instilled in me from so many different places, from my parents, my teachers, my friends, the Buddha's teachings, my meditation practice, my Dharma teachers. They were conditions. They arise from causes and conditions, just like anything else. So I could appreciate them, but not take ownership of them. And I really noticed how I felt more at ease and happier and clearer when I was aware of more of the full spectrum of my qualities, my strengths, and not just my weaknesses. And this gave me more capacity to connect with compassion, too. I had more emotional resilience that came from this um, strengthening the capacity to experience joy. Then I also had more availability to be with suffering, too. So again, we see how compassion and joy can work together and come back to equanimity, come together as this flowering of equanimity. And equanimity is the quality of balance. And just to say that in English, it's, a, it's an old-fashioned word. It refers to the sense of balance and the heart-mind being completely at ease. There's no wanting anything. There's no not wanting anything. Just that capacity to be with things as they are. A state of deep acceptance and peace. (coughs) And again, just to acknowledge that in our current times that can sound very challenging, perhaps even unrealistic, when there's so much divisiveness and fracturing and polarization. But because of that, we need equanimity more than ever. So it's fortunate that like all of the Brahma-viharas, this is a practice that we can directly cultivate. And for me, at least of all of the four, I think this one is the most challenging to understand and to practice, partly because it's quite subtle and refined, it's deep, And it's also a quality that generally isn't very valued much by mainstream society these days. So I often joke that you don't hear people saying things like, wow, when my son backed over the mailbox in our new car, I had so much equanimity. (laughs) Or I love listening to talkback radio because it gives me a great opportunity to practice equanimity. It's just not something that's kind of part of our... I think most people have never even heard of equanimity unless they're in a tradition like this. So just to say a little bit more about what equanimity is and what it isn't. The Pali word that's usually translated as equanimity is upekka. And this literally means, uh, one literal meaning of this is to look over, to, which suggests being in the position to see the bigger picture. So equanimity has a very direct connection with seeing clearly, with insight and with wisdom. So sometimes I think of it as that experience we can have if we're hiking and climbing a mountainside 
And perhaps at the beginning of the hike, we're slogging through the undergrowth, the forest. It's dense, and I can only see a few meters in front of me. But after a lot of uphill effort, I finally get above the tree line, and I can look back over the countryside below and suddenly see where I came from in a whole new context. There's openness and expansiveness, and I'm not just stuck in my own narrow viewpoint anymore. And that change of perspective is a real moment of freedom. So this clear seeing is one aspect of equanimity. And another powerful aspect of it is stability. So sometimes I think of it as, in terms of another metaphor as being like the keel of a boat. So uh, many years ago in Australia, I'd had the chance to live on board a broken down old wooden yacht, an old sailing boat, a small old sailing boat. And this boat was actually a bit of a wreck when a friend and I bought it. We bought it in a fit of naive enthusiasm, actually without any equanimity. And so when we bought this boat, it was out of the water, and we spent many months fixing it up so that we could get it sailing again. And one of my tasks was to sand down and repaint the massive lead keel. And this keel weighed about one ton on a small boat, and I remember thinking, that's a huge keel for this relatively small boat. But once we got it in the water, I understood why. Because when we're sailing, sometimes the waves and the winds uh, have sent the boat leaning really hard over, leaning over into the water, and it was the weight of the keel that prevented it from capsizing. It's the weight of the keel that also allows us to sail through those waves and winds instead of just bobbing around on the surface. So equanimity is like that. Like the boat, we are subject to the changing conditions of life, the winds and the waves and the tides and the ocean currents. But equanimity, the keel, is what lets us navigate through them without flipping over, without flipping out. And even though we have this lead keel, there's a responsiveness. So we might, at times, we lean hard over, but we don't capsize. So equanimity then has this quality of stability, this capacity to respond rather than react. And the difference is that reacting tends to come from our habitual knee jerk reactions to situations whereas responding comes more from a place of spontaneous wisdom, and it's grounded in all of these Brahma-Vihara qualities. And that might sound good, but most of us need some training to get there. And when we begin to tune into this quality of equanimity, at least for me, in the beginning, what I mostly noticed was the lack of equanimity. And what I mostly noticed was its opposite, all the different forms of reactivity. And these are known as the far enemy of equanimity. Any kind of unbalanced reaction, for example, the five hindrances that I spoke about the other night, and all reactions that are rooted in greed and hatred and delusion. So the far enemy of equanimity 
is our habitual reactivity to circumstances. And the Buddha identified a list of these, a list of life circumstances that most of us react to quite strongly with either wanting or not wanting. And this list is known as the eight vicissitudes. There's a lot of words in the Dharma that really give the mouth a workout. So I'll just refer to them as the eight worldly winds because that's much easier to say. So on a worldly level, on the relative level, these are pairs of opposites that, as you'll hear when I list them, we tend to hold on to one half of the pair and to really reject the other. So as you hear these pairs, just notice any responses in your own body and heart and mind. So these are the eight worldly winds. Pleasure and pain. Gain and loss. Praise and blame. Fame and infamy or disrepute. And on one level, it's quite obvious, it's instinctive that we want to only experience pleasure and gain and praise and fame. And we do not want to ever experience pain and loss and blame and disrepute. But is this realistic? Has anyone ever experienced only pleasure and gain and praise and fame? And yet, consciously or unconsciously, that's what so many of us are trying to achieve. And practicing equanimity can be a very powerful antidote to this delusion. It's a wisdom training because when we see reality clearly, we see the truth of impermanence, the truth of change. We understand that these eight worldly winds are constantly swirling. Sometimes there's pleasure, then there's pain, then there's pleasure again, and then there's gain, and there's loss, and there's praise, and there's blame, and there's fame, and there's infamy. You've probably seen that playing out in various forms during this retreat. So understanding these things inevitably change allows us to have more peace of mind. Instead of fighting reality, we start to live more in accordance with it. Then there's greater ease and harmony. So equanimity has qualities of acceptance and of stability, and it can be practiced on many different levels. It's actually a key aspect of mindfulness. So to the extent that we're practicing mindfulness, we're already strengthening this capacity in the sense of this training to just be with our experience exactly as it is. And in a similar way, when I talked the other night about this mantra of ABC, of creating a bigger container, there is also that sense of consciously cultivating spaciousness in relation to our experience. So there was a question about this, um, what is meant by a bigger container. So just as a brief recap, it was the invitation to notice when we encounter some unpleasant emotion particularly, there's that tendency in the body and the mind to clamp down on it, to resist it, to tighten up, to contract in some way, to get smaller. 
So this ABC was an offering, a suggestion to see, can I make a bigger container? And one way of doing that, in the body at least, is to, almost, is to sit up straighter and to open the shoulders and to breathe more deeply, to open the lungs, to physically create more space in the body. We can also, if the um, reaction is very intense, we can open the eyes and we can open up to the space in the room. And if even that doesn't feel like enough, we can look outside and open to the sky because the sky is an amazing resource for helping us connect with a sense of expansiveness. It's such a powerful way of putting our challenges into perspective. And this capacity to see the bigger picture is a crucial aspect of equanimity practice. It's that capacity to see beyond just my own perspective and to see that my own perspective is actually my own perspective. It's not the universal truth that we so often wish it was or think it is. And I can still remember the shock of reading a line in a Dharma book many years ago that said, it's better to be kind than to be right. And until that moment, I just hadn't seen how much energy I'd been investing in being right. It felt like such a fundamental orientation linked in some ways to a very basic survival instinct. Because being wrong might mean being rejected by the tribe being outcast and dying. So on one level, it's natural to want to be right. But if we want to be free, if we want to live with ever-deepening wisdom and compassion, we're going to have to learn how to reduce our attachment to views and opinions and our identification with being right. Because these are all various forms of clinging that make us tight and that creates so much suffering for ourselves and for others. So these Brahma-Vihara practices together also provide a training in letting go. They strengthen our emotional resilience, and they open up space so that there's less room for the hindrances to overtake us. Perhaps some of you have noticed that during this retreat, Perhaps there was a time when you were experiencing one of those multiple hindrance attacks that I described the other night. And if you think back on that, you might remember, how did that feel in the body and the heart and the mind when you were in the grip of a hindrance attack? For myself, I usually experience a a sense of tightening and contracting and narrowing, and it feels like my body and my world get smaller and more solid. And the opposite is also true. So if you think of a time during this retreat when the Brahma-Viharas were strong, how did that feel in the body and the heart and the mind? And again, for myself at least, there's usually a sense of openness, of ease, of calm, of spaciousness. And uh, the monk Bhikkhu Analyo has pointed out that when we're in that state of greater spaciousness, it's much harder for the hindrances to take hold because there's nowhere for them to take root. They can't sort of land. 
And that spaciousness is a very powerful aspect of equanimity because it protects us from the hindrances and from all the other afflictive mind states. So these, what I've been talking about so far, are the far enemies of equanimity. And equanimity also has its near enemy, which is indifference. And one of the challenges of equanimity is that because it's quite a subtle quality, at least in daily life, it can be easy to overlook it and even to misunderstand it. And sometimes people have a misperception that equanimity means some kind of flat, blank, non-responsive state. And in popular culture, for example, people talk about being very Zen. And what they mean by very Zen is usually kind of sitting there doing nothing while some kind of crisis is going on. But this is not true equanimity. It's more like denial. And it can be hard to distinguish the near, equanimity, the near enemy of equanimity from the um, this sense of subtle indifference and sometimes the um, unconscious misusing of equanimity is a kind of deluded escapism or spiritual bypassing, to put it another way. Sometimes we might find ourselves trying to convince ourselves that we're in a state of equanimity when really we're in denial of some kind. So one way, for me at least, to try and distinguish the difference is again to check into the body because the body doesn't lie. And when I, I've, learned, uh, I've learned over time that when the equanimity is genuine, in the body I can feel a subtle vibration, a kind of a warmth, an alive energy. But when it's more disconnection, there's a, a sort of a blankness or flatness or coolness. And there isn't that energetic subtlety that's there with true equanimity. So checking with the body is one way to distinguish this. I had a, a, an experience of this when I was on retreat uh, here during the three months and having individual meetings with the teachers. And at least in the first retreat, I found that whole experience quite intimidating, waiting to go in for the individual meeting. It was sort of like waiting to go to the dentist. And each week I would sit out there in what we call Guru Alley, sort of quivering. And then towards the end of the retreat, I was sitting there and I realized, oh, wow, I don't feel anxiety anymore. I'm just so equanimous. And then I got up to open the door and my palm was sweating so much I couldn't actually turn the door handle. (laughs) Maybe not. So just an example of how the mind can try to tell itself one thing, but the body is revealing more of the full picture of what's going on. So how do we actually cultivate equanimity as a practice? Again, uh, as with metta, we use phrases. One way is to use phrases uh, that incline the heart and mind in the direction of balanced acceptance. And these phrases generally about opening to and accepting the truth of how things are. So just a few examples from some well-known teachers. This is from Jack Cornfield. May I learn to see the arising and passing of all things 
with equanimity and balance. Or may I accept and open to how it is right now, because this is how it is right now. That's Kamala Masters. And I appreciate that right now piece, because that stops it from being, this is how it is, that sort of resigned defeatedness. This is how it is right now, and it will change. Another set, may I embrace change with stillness and calm. May I deeply accept this moment as it is. That's Christina Feldman. Or if we're working with equanimity in relation to other people, some phrases, this one from Sharon Salzberg, I wish you happiness but cannot make your choices for you. And then some traditional ones, a lot of teachers use them, so I don't know if they come from one particular teacher. I care about you, but I cannot live your life for you. Your happiness or unhappiness depends upon your actions, not upon my wishes for you. So you might notice as you hear these phrases, for some people there's a sense of relief, of ease, of letting go. For others there might be resistance. No, I have to be able to control this situation. And it's normal to notice a range of different responses because as I've been emphasizing, all of these practices are purification practices. So they're designed to show us what gets in the way of equanimity. So we have to try to cultivate equanimity for the non-equanimity when it does come up and to have a lot of patience with ourselves because these qualities just take time to develop. And when we do learn how to keep orienting the heart and the mind towards balance, we become much less dependent on outside conditions being any particular way in order for us to be happiness in order for us to be happy. This is very different from the way most of us are in the world where we put so much effort and energy into trying to control things out there. And this is only at best partially successful. So if we have this ability to stay calm and at ease, no matter the outer circumstances, that's real, uh, real freedom. So this spaciousness and ease of equanimity gives us more spaciousness and ease and ability to connect with others. And so last night, Oren quoted a passage from James Baldwin that I'd like to read again now because for me it was such a powerful reminder of how pain has this potential to connect us to something so much bigger than ourselves. So you might remember he said, You think your pain and your heartbreak are unprecedented in the history of the world, but then you read. It was books that taught me that the things that tormented me most were the very things that connected me with all the people who were alive, who had ever been alive. And so when I hear that, I just have this sense of expansiveness and connection with a history that is so much bigger than my own life story, so much bigger than the current turmoil that's going on. 
So in these difficult times when there's so much divisiveness, this is what I hope that our time here on retreat will help us to do, to strengthen our hearts so that we develop this greater and greater capacity to be with our own and others' pain. So we learn how to open to the 10,000 sorrows, or perhaps in the beginning just 10 sorrows is enough. But we also open to the 10,000 joys, or again, perhaps just 10 joys to start with. But gradually we expand our comfort zones to really open to more and more of the full spectrum of our life experiences and to keep seeing this bigger picture keep orienting beyond our individual personal stories. And then we start to enter into the boundlessness, the unconditionality of these Brahma-Vihara qualities. Our hearts and minds open more and more fully. And ultimately, no aspect of our lives is resisted and no aspect is clung to. And this is the deepest freedom that all of these practices are leading to. So I'd like to finish with a quote from the Tibetan teacher Pema Chodron, who many of you know, because she describes both the challenges and the benefits of practicing equanimity so powerfully. She says, To cultivate equanimity, we practice catching ourselves when we feel attraction or aversion before it hardens into grasping or negativity. We train in staying with a soft spot and use our biases as stepping stones for connecting with the confusion of others. Strong emotions are useful in this regard. Whatever arises, no matter how bad it feels, can be used to extend our kinship to others who suffer the same kind of aggression or craving, who, just like us, get hooked by hope and fear. This is how we come to appreciate that everyone is in the same boat. We all desperately need more insight into what leads to happiness and what leads to pain. It's easy to continue, even after years of practice, to harden into a position of anger and indignation. However, if we can contact the vulnerability and the rawness of resentment or rage or whatever it is, a bigger perspective can emerge. In the moment that we choose to abide with the energy, instead of acting it out or repressing it, we're training in equanimity, in thinking bigger than right and wrong. This is how all four limitless qualities of love, compassion, joy, and equanimity evolve from limited to limitless. We practice catching our mind hardening into fixed views and do our best to soften. Through softening, the barriers come down. So thank you for your attention. Let's just sit quietly for a few moments.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.